Well, good morning, church. Take your time, take your time. <laughs> a few introductory remarks before we, uh, we begin when dive into the topic today. Uh, and the topic is going to be gang tackling the problem of evil. I'll go on to explain what I mean by that as we proceed here. But um, I want to make an introductory remark about the idea of Christian apologetics, if you're not familiar with that term. Uh, apologetics is simply defending uh, God and defending the Bible as the word of God and so forth. And the reason that I became uh, so interested in apologetics was something that uh, Dwight referenced last week where he talked about a young man who had gone away to college and he came back at the next break and he was an unbeliever. And what I like to do is I like to endeavor into these issues because uh, a lot of people's faiths are damaged because skeptics come along and uh, throw out things, questions they can't answer. So when I ran into my own crisis of faith, rather than going to septic, uh, secular sources, skeptics and so forth, I went to see what uh, men of, and women of God had to say about these issues and uh, I was very rewarded for having done that and found out that the Christian explanations for many issues were much greater than the uh, skeptical uh, type of things they'd throw out there. So uh, our first point of departure in, uh, today, uh, we're going to kick off with 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. And I've got a cheat sheet, so I'll give you a little time to get there. I haven't done this for a while, so hopefully I have enough material to last till 4 p.m. when the sermon. <laughs> no, I'll have to take a drink of water every now and then for my vocal cords, but other than that. So we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. In theology and Christian apologetics, one of the most difficult issues to handle is a topic, subtopic called theodicy, that is, defending the character of God in light of the permeation of evil we observe in the world all around us. This is sometimes and more popularly characterized as the problem of evil, the problem of pain, or the problem of suffering. The 18th century Scottish philosopher, and we can put the first slide on right now. The 18th century Scottish philosopher and skeptic David Hume constructed his argument this way. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Whence then is evil? Now this particular uh, syllogism and we can put up the next slide. This particular form of the argument was once believed to spell the demise of God, that God described in the scriptures. Not necessarily any God, but the God described in the scriptures as all-loving and all-powerful. No, but not so fast here. If we take the three given propositions, that God is good, God is all-powerful, omnipotent, but that evil happens and exists, but then we insert a fourth term as a viable possibility, that God has a morally sufficient reason for the evil that exists or he allows 
known at least to himself, we, say, we see that we split the horns of the dilemma here because we secure God's omnipotence and we also show that God is morally sufficient in what he does. Many apologists have far more intricate and detailed explanations of this issue, but I wanted to give you just a basic outline of this to show you how this is done, because we're not going to concentrate so much on the logical issue today as the secondary problem that we have with the problem of evil, and that would be an emotional or a psychological problem. Now, we could go further in putting a little meat on the bones here, and we could say that, well, the reason we have evil is that God desires the love of his creation. In order to love, we must have free will. And because we have free will, um, humanity is permitted to sin. And because humanity sinned, we're in a fallen state. So that's why we have evil. Uh, You know, that's the whole issue. But we're not really going to concern ourselves a lot with doing that today. And so after I've explained this, how is it we don't feel any different about uh, the evil around us? We're we're still suffering, we still have pain, we still know there's evil in the world. And that's because, as I've said, a problem like this has not only a logical problem, but it has an emotional problem as well. Uh, We have the inquiry of the mind, but we also have the cries of the heart to deal with. Now, I'll give you an example. Let's say somebody comes up to you and they want to know, in the Garden of Eden, did Adam and Eve have belly buttons? (laughs) So I guess if you want to be tricky about it, you say, well, we're not given that information. If you want to be a little bit more introspective, you might say, well, no, they weren't birthed. They didn't have navels, or they didn't have umbilical cords, so they probably didn't have navels either. But notice that answering that question or not answering that question does not bring about any sort of uh, emotional or psychological pain. However, when you consider the evil in the world, that does. And that's what we have to deal with. The real obstacle here is that we do not know the reasons. We have mystery in the world. And unbelievers... uh, have a lot of problems with this. They'll tend to run this at Christians a lot where they say, well, I'm not going to just accept this, the Lord works in mysterious ways type of explanation for things. But we have to realize that where we have the intersection of omniscience and limited knowledge, we are always going to have mystery. It's completely logical and completely compatible with how things are in the world. Our uh, second reference today, we're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29. And we read, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Now, you know, it says the secret things belong to the Lord. So there are things that we just don't know, no matter how great our quest is for knowledge, no matter how far scientific uh, explanation goes, and we, we find the gap of knowledge being less and less, there are always going to be things hidden in God that we do not know. And those things may tend to vex the human spirit at times. Um, so 
I'd like to look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. In Isaiah 55, verses 8, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Again, we have to realize that when we have issues and we don't know the problems, God's thoughts are above our thoughts, his ways are above our ways. We must understand this as we proceed, as we go through our grief, as we go through our suffering, that God has a purpose for these things. And we have to keep that in mind as we endure these types of things. God's calculus, um, well, let's put it this way. When we ask the reasons why we don't understand, when we want to know, well, why is it that we don't understand? Part of it is, that God's calculus is way beyond our understanding, just as we read in Isaiah. And the best example I can give to illustrate this that I can think of is, let's suppose that we take a child who's, say, six years old, just learning how to do mathematics, learning how to add and subtract, and that's about as far as they can go. So we bring that child into a classroom, and there's a chalkboard in there, and we have a quadratic equation written on the board, we hand this young boy or girl the piece of chalk and we say, have at it, solve this equation for X or for the variable or whatever. And the child stands there and stares at the board for about five minutes and looks at figures and signs that may as well be Egyptian hieroglyphics written on a pyramid, throws the chalk to the floor and says, math is stupid, and bolts out of the room. Now... Do we, do we believe math is stupid? To the child it is, because the child doesn't understand. But there is a solution to the problem. It's just that there's the sophistication to solve the problem is lacking, the uh, competence, what's needed. And we find ourselves a lot in that situation in a world of suffering and pain where God has the answers to things, but those answers are so difficult. All the intricacies, all the, the web of different possibilities are so intricate, we can't possibly understand it. That's one reason God can't or isn't able to reveal the answers to us. Um, in the popular hymn by Josh Carroll's, Farther Along, the first stanza reads, and interestingly enough, uh, this was a a favorite hymn in a, in a Bible study I used to attend. And the gentleman who was conducting the Bible study used to insist that everybody sang this with a Arkansas drawl to it. So it sounded rather interesting. But um, the first stanza, Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. So cheer up, my brothers. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. Once again, keeping the faith, understanding that we will eventually know these things. The answers will be there one day, but for the time being, we have to deal with the lack of understanding, the lack of knowledge we have, the, the fact that we don't know why these things are happening. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verses 11 we'll start with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. 
I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. Again, we have the illustration of seeing as a child, not seeing through the glass clearly. I know I've recently had some issues with a cataract on my right eye, and when I close, I've got great vision in my left eye, but when I close my right eye, or when I close my left eye, everything becomes a little blurry, and it's like I'm looking through a glass that needs some Windex on it. Same thing here. We're seeing through a glass cloudy, but later on, we will see face to face. We know in part now, we will see everything more later on. We have that promise. There's a Christian apologist by the name of William Lane Craig who frequently engages in debate with atheists. And uh, in the question and answer phase, a lot of times that occurs after these debates, he's frequently asked the question, well, is there anything that someone could say or something that could happen to you that would make you disavow God? And Craig thinks about it and then concedes, well, if something happened, for example, like I was told next week that my wife has terminal cancer and has three months to live, well, maybe if I was presented something like that, it's never happened to me before, so who knows what how I would react emotionally or psychologically to traumatic news like that. But then Craig makes the point, he says, the wrong question though here is being asked. It's not, would I disavow, disavow God, but should I disavow God? And I have to be honest with you, I don't even remember how Craig answered that question. But for the rest of the study, that's what I'm going to try to deal with. Um, what Dr. Craig here experienced in theory, I've experienced in real life. Um, my wife and I used to sit over in that corner and go to the first service, and she passed away last fall, so I've had to deal with um, that problem, that particular issue of evil. And um, so what I want to talk about is how we, we can deal with that, how we can deal with the, what we don't know, the difficulties, the tragedies, the problems. So first and foremost, it's this. Our faith tradition teaches us that when a loved one dies as a believer, there in the love, rest and comfort of God. And here is where the rubber meets the road concerning a believer. When we're faced with this, we have to really believe. We have to really trust God for this. Um, one thing I will tell you that I did quite often is I used to read the paper and I would come to the obituary session, um, section of the paper. I'd see a number of people, you know, so-and-so lived to be 94, Aunt Millie, you know, and Uncle Joe lived to be 98. You'd say, wow, these people had long, productive lives and died in their sleep and they imparted a lot of wisdom onto their progeny and so forth like this. And then all of a sudden, you'd come along and you'd see 
so-and-so died, was cut down in the summer of life, 38 years old, surrounded by family and friends when they passed on, or even maybe more heart-wrenching than that, the infant child who never, never even experiences anything at all. And I remember seeing these things and I thought, if I was an honest skeptic, right now I would have to say, um, this is challenging my faith. But because emotionally somebody else's tragedy doesn't really hit us right between the eyes, we're able to say, well, that's too bad, it's unfortunate. But we never stop and have an epiphany like that and really think about every one of those people who's experiencing the death of their loved one in a situation like this is going through that trauma, is going through that questioning in their mind. And we never know, we never know what good can come from the evil we experience. Sometimes in hindsight we discover small things, but generally we don't know. We live our whole lives without that knowledge. There's an interesting example um, it's a story told about a wise man in a village. And what happened is the prominent people in the town would come up to this guy. And this was in an agrarian village centuries ago. Um, so they'd come up to him and they'd tell him the latest scuttle about what was going on in the town. And they'd ask for his pronouncement on it. And he'd say, well, maybe good, maybe bad. And they'd come back the next day and tell him, Something else had happened. And, you know, from the initial point of view, it looked like it, it was one of those things, well, how, how can you possibly think this is uh, anything but bad, you know? And good, well, maybe good, maybe bad. And they were really getting irritated with him. And then finally they came to him one day and they said, well, local farmer's son fell off his horse while he was horseback riding and broke his leg. And now he can't help his father with the crops, harvesting the crops that are coming up in a week or two. Come to the wise man, maybe good, maybe bad. And now they were really upset. Well, the following week, uh, a war broke out. And the government officials were coming around looking to conscript young men. They saw the son, he had a broken leg, couldn't take him for the war. So was he right? Maybe good, maybe bad. You know, this mor- or yesterday, rather, um, an interesting thing happened. I was working on my computer, and I was uh, printing some things out in colored ink, and um, everything was working fine. So then I hit the button to print out the notes I had for today, and guess what happened? Well, nothing happened. <laughs> and... Um, I had color-coded some of the notes I had here so it would be easier for me to read, you know, highlighting things and whatnot. And I thought, oh boy, what am I going to do now? And finally an error message popped up and it said that I had the, uh, the, the color cartridge was not seated properly. And it said that I needed to take it out and reinsert it or whatever. And I did that several times and nothing still happened. So finally, what I did is I recoded everything in black and took the cartridge out and then I got it to print in black, thank God, and I got it to work. But I just kept thinking, whenever you're, you've got some kind of plan or you've, you've got everything all mapped out, there's the devil with the details. So uh, that was an interesting situation. But I thought to myself, what would have happened today 
if, for example, on the way here, would have got a flat tire and I couldn't make it on time. Well, would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it depends. <laughs> Suppose that what I didn't know is when I got to the next intersection, the sun was in my eyes, I pulled out in front of a speeding car going 55 miles an hour, was sideswiped and killed instantly. Well, was it good or bad then? Let's suppose that I did pull out in that intersection, was hit by that car 55 miles an hour, killed instantly. Is it good or bad? Well, let's suppose at a memorial service for me here, five people hear the word for the first time and they're convicted. Was it good or bad? That's the way you've got to look at things when it comes to this. Back in 2008, things were going very well um, in our household. Things were going very well for me personally. Um, at the time, I was probably writing for maybe 10 different websites. Um, I, was, uh, I was involved with a a local newspaper here called Together in Faith. It was distributed to uh, a number of Roman Catholic, I think 300 congregations, and I thought, wouldn't that be great for an evangelical writer to be able to get uh, the message out to that group of people um, there? I was involved in a very liberal um, publication called The Daily Scene. They invited me to be their conservative writer, uh, token writer for that, um, I had been invited to uh, participate in a couple of debates. Uh, my wife and I had just been invited to do a conference in Crystal Lake, Illinois, where we had gone down there and she read her uh, poem on abortion and I did a presentation, a pro-life presentation. A guy had called me up right after that, wanted me to come out to his charter school in Pennsylvania. Everything was just going great. Well, three months later, my wife and I stared at the ruins of our house, and if you could put up a slide, we'll show you that in just a second. That's what my house looked like after it was done. Some people thought that this uh, had been a hurricane or a, a tornado. This was actually a fire, and what happened is because it was an old remodeled farmhouse, they used sawdust for insulation. The fire went up through the uh, the wall spaces, and they had to come in with a backhoe to uh, knock it all down in order to put the fire out to extinguish it. And um, so basically, uh, as you can see, there was very little salvageable in the debris. Um, but a couple of days after this fire occurred, my wife reminded me, do you know, Bob, last Friday, uh, we had finished reading the book of Job, See, on our own, we did the same thing we do here at Calvary where we read a chapter or so every night in the scriptures. And uh, three days before that, we had finished the book of Job. So was it prophetic? You tell me. Interesting thing happened, though, after that. Um, this occurred before we, um, we were members at Calvary. We were members at another local church at the time. And there was a woman there who had a brother and he owned apartment in downtown Kukana. He had owned apartment buildings and happened to have in a furnished apartment available at that time. And my wife and I moved in because 
it was downtown Kakana. We lived in rural Kakana, and we wanted a place close by where we were able to um, go and, look, you know, we had to work on the property. So anyway, after we were there for about a month, I got up one morning, and she said to me, you notice that house across the river, she said. You notice how the sun is gleaming off of that house? Isn't that interesting? Well, maybe a week or so later, uh, her daughter came down to visit. And they went over on the other side of the river and they noticed that very house where the gleaming was off the roof had an open house. So they went in there and the nice gentleman inside said, well, my realtor isn't here today, but I can show you around if you want to see things. So that night after work, my wife came back and told me about this. Um, And she said, I want you to come over and look at this cool house on the other side of the river. So I had a day off coming up and I said, okay, I'll go over there and look. And we're walking around in there and, you know, looking at the architecture and the inside, the interior. And I said, yeah, this is really interesting and so forth. And then finally, we go into the study and I see all these books in there. And I go, this guy must really be theologically astute. He's got a lot of the same books I have sitting here. And so, um, guess whose house that was? It was Dwight's house, that's right. Yep, and uh, it was still about a year before we started coming here, but uh, I told uh, I told Dwight that story, and and then one time to be a little mischievous, I guess he came into the men's study and he said, um, he said, I don't know if you guys know this, but the the Myers house burned to the ground, and everyone went, <gasps> and Dwight said, the good news is it happened five years ago. <laughs> That's delight for you. <laughs> but um, I'd like to read something to you. Um, I just got this uh, through email from, it's a, it's a guy that, well, it's a, an individual I knew when I was in grade school, and I haven't had much contact with him since then, other than that I belong to a group of people who kind of reminisce about their childhood up at Spencer Lake near Walpaca. And uh, I want you to listen carefully to what he said. I missed the opportunity to have, excuse me, I missed the opportunity to have my midlife crisis, and now I find myself facing an end-life crisis. Turns out that my visit to Mayo Clinic last week brought about a number of concerns that have very serious implications for my life. As some of you may know, I've been battling kidney disease failure for the last 18 months. Kidneys have died in absent a transplant from a donor. I will be married to dialysis machine three days a week in order to sustain life. Now they have discovered a tumor in the kidney. Going in this weekend to begin testing for cancer in the kidneys and prostate. However, this is the more insignificant findings. My heart has decided to give me some new challenges. Doctors wanted emergency surgery. However, I decided I needed my end-of-life crisis before entering into surgery tomorrow for an angiogram to place stints or potential triple bypass open-heart surgery. My life has been very interesting with many times that I should have entered into the afterworld, yet I'm still here. My mother and father 
blessed anointed prayer warriors, I am sure carried me through the valleys and shadows. My college buddies have a theory that heaven apparently doesn't want me and hell can't handle me and therefore I'm still on this earth. Kind of funny, but makes a person wonder. I totaled out many vehicles, was hit by a train, rear-ended by a vehicle going 80 miles an hour, rolled a truck due to black ice, divorced from my college sweetheart, who a few years following came to me with a heavy heart and asked my forgiveness for what happened in our life. No hesitation to forgive. However, as many of you know, she was two months later brutally murdered by her second husband. Probably the hardest thing I have ever had to face was to take my three adolescent children through that, to that funeral and process of explaining, the, guiding them through life's injustices. Then an injury to my left leg left me challenged with diabetes and infections that went into my blood. Looking like I was going to lose my leg, I faced a second heartfelt injury in my life. <clears throat> conversations, in conversations one night I was told, this is not what I signed up for. I was promised a condo on the beach. Now you can't even walk on the beach. Just so you know, I'm not going to take care of a cripple, and I don't want to be married to one. Ouch. The next day, her girlfriend found me at lunch and served the papers. She was gone. The only thing I will say to clear the record is that it always takes two to disagree. Moving forward, I will focus on what I call the three G's in my life, God-given greats. I'm very a blessed man with three fabulous children who have lived a hard childhood with a disastrous death of their mother and then a blended family that had all of the issues of blended families. My last prayer request for my children is that they would find their way back into the loving arms of our God and Savior and develop that relationship with him. My children are my biggest God-given greats. Isn't it amazing that this man, after going through something that is somewhat parallel almost to Paul's perils as outlined in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, can still be grateful after all these things. What amazing power that is. I was so touched by that. As we continue now, the second thing I keep in mind, as I go through my daily life, I need to do a lot of the things that my wife once did. I live on a quite a large property that takes upkeep, and I recognize that being that I'm still working, I can't do all the love for gardening she had and all those kind of things. So I have to kind of, um, I have to sort of, ju you know, just do the things I can do and not be as meticulous. So what I realized is this. I, I think of myself when I'm out there pulling weeds in the garden as I'm sort of standing on her shoulders. I may not always be as competent and as adequate in doing it, but nevertheless, I feel as purposeful. Um, and on the evening um, that we had the funeral service here, I was down in the basement. And I had remembered back in time when I had an older friend, I was in my teens, and this individual had a spiral notebook where he wrote down all these, when he read, he wrote down books of quotations. And uh, I thought that was pretty neat, especially for a guy who was still a teenager to be doing things like that. And so I came along and I said, you know, I can come up with my own quotations. 
And one of the things that I came up with, and I found this index card that night then when I was down in the basement, is it said, a person must have the tenacity to complete their objectives against all obstacles, yet the versatility to amend their objectives at a moment's notice. Now, I wasn't talking about compromising here. What I was talking about is discovering either you were wrong or that something in your life changed and you had to reverse course or go in a different direction and you had to have the flexibility and the ability to do something like that. Um, we look at people's lives and we know that each life has a ripple effect. And this focuses in with the problem of evil. One example of this I can think of, I think everybody probably has seen the uh, Christmas story, It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, the character George Bailey in there is contemplating jumping off a bridge because his uncle carelessly lost the $8,000 that was supposed to be deposited in the bank by sticking it inside a newspaper and handing it to somebody who wasn't going to tell that he got the money. But he's assigned a guardian angel in the story uh, to look after him. And he tries to make George think of a way to realize that his life was meaningful. And George mutters, I wish I had never been born. So the angel gets the idea. All right, that's a great idea. We're going to show him how the world would be if he was never born. So various things happen. He goes uh, into a cemetery and sees the tombstone of his younger brother. And he says, that's impossible. My brother was a war hero and he saved every man on his troop transport ship. The angel tells him, no, he didn't. All those men died. He said, you were not there to save your brother when he fell through the ice in a sledding accident. And you weren't there, so he wasn't there to save those men on that transport and they all died. He goes into the village where he had run a savings and loan and there was a subdivision that many people borrowed money to build houses and the place is all full of nightclubs and gambling parlors and virtual brothels and he can't believe what the town looks like because he wasn't there. He finds his wife was a librarian and an old maid who never married and when he tries to approach her she runs away and screams. He finds his friend the the cop and the taxi driver, Bert and Ernie, are completely hostile to him. And at one point, he think, they think he's a crazy man, and the officer shoots a gun at him. But then he comes to realize he really did have a wonderful life. And then everything in that story, anyway, works out for the good. Another bit of inspiration that... Um, I always took was a story called The Blind Man and the Bleachers, if you ever heard about it. A song, in fact, uh, was written about it. And uh, I think it was David Geddes in the mid-70s, and then there were maybe a couple other artists who covered the same song. But it was a theme of this. Uh, there's a second-string football player, and uh, he, he never gets to play, and he isn't very motivated or anything. He has a father who is blind, and his father always sits up right next to the public announcer because he can hear, still hear, and he's always hoping to hear his son's name being called. Um, 
Then one night, Friday night, last game of the season, everybody notices the old man isn't sitting up there. First half proceeds where the young man's team is taking a pretty good whipping. And they go in for the half, and suddenly someone says there's a call for this young man in the office. He comes back for the second half, and he begs the coach to go into the game. And the coach figures, well, what's to lose? You know, we're, we're losing anyway. And he goes into the game, and this guy plays like nobody's ever played before. And he spearheads his team's come-from-behind victory. And after the game, the coach wants to know, and there's stories in the paper, and he wants to know what in the world got into you, what motivated you. And he said, well, I got a call at halftime, and you notice my father wasn't sitting up there today. I got a call. See, my father had been hospitalized, and he passed away tonight. And I realized this was the first time he ever saw one of my games. Now, that may be not theologically accurate, but you can understand the motivational impetus behind it. Let's look at Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Now, to just give you a little background here, um, in Jerusalem, of course, in Israel, there was a lot of uh, insurrection going on and things. And so Jesus was asked a question regarding an incident that had happened there. In fact, two different incidences here we're going to deal with. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to start out. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now they were there making sacrifices and Pilate came in with soldiers and and had some people killed who had been involved or or who maybe were innocent bystanders uh, with this insurrection that he was trying to quell. And so Jesus answered them and said, Do you suppose these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, so they even had a small disaster in their days, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now I think sometimes because of the gospel of prosperity and things, there is this idea that people directly suffer for their sins. And we all know people who we've looked at their lives and we say sometimes they're their own worst enemies. Now that much is true, but sometimes people have had unnecessarily guilt and anguish because they thought they were suffering because they did something wrong. They offended God in some way and he was taking out their retribution on them. Now you notice Jesus doesn't come up with any sophisticated calculus for explaining why these people met these fates. But he says, They were no worse sinners than anyone else, but unless you, unless you repent, you will also perish. Something to remember here. Interesting story is told about um, the poet John Milton. Late in life, he became blind, and um, the, the Puritans had beheaded in England Charles I, the king. And Charles II, the son, came to Milton and said, 
the reason you've suffered blindness is because your folk had beheaded my father. And he said, well, if God's judgment has made me blind, what can we say about your father's head? (laughs) Thought that was interesting. Let's look at Romans chapter 8. And when you get there, you can keep your finger there because we will be going back there after we go to another verse. Romans chapter 8, starting with uh, the 20th verse. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into a glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. Not only that, but we also who have finished, excuse me, not only that, but we also know who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Now, notice that it's not just humanity that is in a fallen state, but all of nature, all of the created order, all of the animal kingdom. With man, uh, I believe they refer to this as uh, uh, federalism, the concept of federalism, where uh, man was the representative for nature as a whole. And so the sins of man brought nature, conflict with man and nature, conflict with man and all of God's creation here, not just man with God. So the entire creation is um, groaning and laboring with birth pangs. So the whole world is askew. The problem of evil occurs because of this imbalance, so to speak. Um, Interesting example of a concept in Christianity we refer to as common grace. We'll see this in Matthew chapter 5. And keep your fingers in Roman 8 while you uh, turn there. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45. That ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Again, the, common, uh, the, the concept they describe in theology as common grace, that we see people all around us that look like they're doing bad things and they're still prospering. We see people, we think, from a human point of view who are doing good things, and they suffer bad and suffering and punishment in, our li- in their lives. But that's generally how the world works in this fallen state, And God has this common grace that even the unbeliever is going to prosper in some respects. Um, Now we're going back to Romans chapter 8 again. And we're going to deal with the the original text that we started out with this gang tackling the problem of evil. Romans chapter 8 or chapter 8 and verse 28. And know that this... um, This particular scripture is probably one of the more mangled and distorted verses because it's sometimes not, it's truncated or um, it's sometimes not completely read properly or understood properly. But here it is. And we know that all things, what? All things, all things, even the evil things, work together for good for whom? 
them that love God, to them that are called according to his purpose. According to whose purpose? Their purpose? God's purpose. I had uh, a plan all in place. Uh, I had planned to retire this year, possibly go with my wife down to Florida for the winter. That wasn't God's plan, apparently. I have to, uh, I have to struggle with that in my life. There's a reason why I'm in the situation I'm in right now. I don't know what that is for sure. Maybe I'll find out in this life. Maybe I won't. But it's something I have to contend with. But you notice that all things work to good for people who are called according to God's purposes. This promise is not made to the unbeliever. A lot of people have little plaques sometimes you'll see them little inspirational plaques we know that all things work together for good not necessarily not for everybody but for those that love God and are called according to his purpose so it's a pretty good thing to be under God's thumb on this so we understand this uh, in a different light sometimes when I was um, when I was 18 years old I went to a bible study and uh, if you'll turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, in any way, it was about um, Elijah fleeing from Queen Jezebel. And, you know, it's a familiar passage that people probably have heard many times in the various studies and so forth. And at the time, you know, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, it's another, uh, another study about some important figure in the Old Testament, but I'm not really sure it has a lot of applicability to me now and I'll just I'll listen and so forth but since then I can't tell you the number of times when this has come up in my own life uh, the example here we want to look at first Kings chapter 19 and verse 4 describing uh, Elijah's mourning now he's being pursued by uh, the soldiers of Queen Jezebel again in the context of this is Elijah has just performed a tremendous miracle where he has ignited a fire with God's power from heaven after dousing all the timbers with water and so forth and uh, he challenged the God or the uh, priests of Baal to do the same thing and they're unable to do it so he got rid of all these guys and uh, Queen Jezebel was not happy about her religious order being destroyed. So even after he's seen this, now he's depressed and on the lamb here. And uh, he's very despondent, sitting under a juniper tree. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. That's a long way to walk, folks. And he came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And he said... It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Here we have one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, a man who saw the mighty workings of God, who saw God's miraculous signs. And yet, in a short order, being under pursuit, being under pressure, he asks for God to take his life. I have to be honest with you. I've felt that way at times. I've thought at times I'd prefer to just go to sleep tonight and not wake up. I've felt that despondent. And I, I felt ashamed for feeling that way sometimes. But even, t 
a man like this, who has seen the greatness of God, still has those times. And it's not unusual for us to feel that way at times. It's very difficult in our journey through life. It's very difficult. So I want to, I want to close with this thought that I've sometimes said when I've done eulogies at funerals. And it's this. Even when we are experiencing our highest mountaintop moments of exhilaration, given the fragility and the uncertainty of life, we yet have nothing more than the promises of God holding us upright. But even more certain is that when we have nothing less than that, when our minds and bodies occupy the deepest canyons of despair and dismay, we still have those promises of God. On that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you today for this assembly, for everyone in this sanctuary, all those who are viewing on the internet and will see this teaching, this study being made. We ask that you bless their lives now and you uphold them through their anguish, their sorrow, their suffering, the problem of evil, the problem of pain, they have a little bit better understanding. They have a little bit better perspective on this issue in life. I pray that what we have shared today will minister to those people and that they will go off today and they will be blessed. Thank you in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.